Amen. Take your Bibles this morning. I want you to find two passages of Scripture. Of course, finding the book of Philippians. You probably already have that marked as we're in this series now. We're calling Still Joyful, Philippians chapter 1. And I also want you to find this morning as we begin uh, Acts chapter 22. And we'll be there in just a moment. And then we'll be going to the book of Philippians as well. You're finding Philippians 1 and Acts 22. While you're doing that, I want to share with you uh, an account that the late Adrian Rogers shared. He said he heard of a man giving his testimony at a Salvation Army meeting. And there was a heckler in the crowd shouting that day, would you shut up? You're just dreaming. This heckler was there uh, crying out that and all of a sudden this heckler felt a tug at his coattail. And he turned to see who it was. And he turned and saw a little girl looking up at him. And the little girl looked at this heckler and said, that's my daddy up there. She said, he used to be a drunkard and beat up my mommy. She said, we didn't have enough food to eat. But then he got saved. And my daddy's life has changed. She said, see that woman over there? See how happy she is? That's my mommy. Little girl looked up at the heckler and said this, Mr. If my daddy's dreaming, don't wake him up. Beloved, when someone is truly born again, when someone truly meets the Lord Jesus Christ, they are forever changed. And I cannot help but think about the Apostle Paul and the change that God worked in his life. You know from our study thus far, from reading the very first verse, that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the author of Philippians. And Philippians is a very warm and loving letter, but I don't think you can appreciate fully the letter until you look at Paul's life and look at Paul's testimony and see the dramatic difference that took place in his life. And I want to turn back to Acts 22, and I want to let Paul share his own testimony to start things off today. And so find Acts 22, we'll begin reading at verse number 3. Paul is speaking here in Acts 22, beginning at verse 3. And he says these words, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God as ye all, as ye all are this day. Look at verse 4. And I persecuted this way or the way. That means I persecuted those who follow Christ. I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. And as also the high priest doth bear me witness and all the estate of the elders from whom also I received letters unto the brethren and went to Damascus. Why? To bring them that were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell unto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answer, who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. 
And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, arise and go into Damascus. And there shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of, the, of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked upon him. And he said, the God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will and see that just one and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be as witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed to the temple, I was in a trance. And saw him saying unto me, Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. Now I want you to look at verse 19. And I said, Lord, they know that I am imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he said unto me, depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Paul or Saul, the persecutor of the church, became Paul, the planter of churches, all by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. With that in mind, go back to Philippians 1 and let's begin reading at verse 1. Philippians 1, 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants, the bond servants, the slaves, if you remember, of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which were at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers of my grace. For God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. I want to submit to you as we study today that Paul serves a wonderful example for believers and how we should live as believers. And as we look at today's passage, verses three through eight, I want all of us to do so prayerfully. And I want us to pray this and ask God, the Holy Spirit, to put his finger on any area of our life that needs attention. Let's pray right now. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the transforming gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh God, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, work and move in a mighty way in our midst today. Open your word up to us. 
If there are any lost among us, I pray that for their conversion, even this very hour. I ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As we look at Paul here today, we notice, first of all, that we need to live a life of thanksgiving. Look back at verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Now, we know what it is to thank someone for something. It can be genuine and heartfelt and sincere. Or it can be forced and fake. Like when you make your children say thank you for uh, the new pair of socks that someone just gave them for their birthday or Christmas. Now, when Paul says thanks here, the question is, was he genuine? Was he sincere or was he just forcefully and just an easy way to open up this letter? Was it just a nice way to begin things here? You know, this is to the Philippians and and grace and peace. And I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Well, one person tells us here that the word translated thank the word translated thank is first used in the New Testament in connection with the feeding of the four thousand. You know, in the feeding of the 4,000, the Lord took seven loaves and fishes. And it says in Matthew 15 that he gave thanks. The word is used again the same way when Paul is on board a storm-tossed ship in Acts chapter 27. And it says he took bread and gave thanks. And John Phillips said here, Paul was as thankful for the Philippians as he was for his daily bread. Think about that. He was as thankful for these people at Philippi, these believers, these brothers and sisters in Christ, as he was for his very sustenance, his daily bread. Now, notice again, verse three, to whom he directs his thanksgiving. I thank my God. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Somebody has said that the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has nobody to thank. That was not the case with Paul. When he thought of the Philippians and his heart was filled with thanksgiving, he turns his thanksgiving to praise the Lord and says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Whenever Paul remembers the Philippians, Philippian believers, whenever somebody mentions the Philippians, he thanks God for them. And we understand here that when he prays for them, according to verse four, look at it. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests, he prays for them with joy. He is truly, genuinely, joyfully thankful for these brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Drop down to verse five for your fellowship of the gospel from the first day until now. When we use the word fellowship, beloved, don't answer out loud. What comes to your mind? More than likely, when we use that word, you think about sitting together with some believers and either enjoying a good cup of coffee, if you like coffee or some other beverage, maybe enjoying a meal together. We even have here at the church from time to time what we call Sunday night fellowship. And we do what? We get together and we might have homemade ice cream or water. Well, it won't make you hungry. But we have a time of enjoyment together. And that is certainly enjoyable, but that's not all there is to Christian fellowship. Now, what is fellowship? The simple definition of a herd is two fellows in a ship. Fellowship. <laughs> The word literally means y'all are slow today. I must be tired. The word literally means participation or partnership. 
And notice it says there, I thank God, verse five, for your fellowship, your partnership, your participation in what? In the gospel. Your partnership in the gospel. Boyce said fellowship originally meant much more than a sharing of something like the fellowship of bank robbers sharing and dividing their loot. Listen, it meant a sharing in something or participating in something greater than the people involved and more lasting than the activity was at any given moment. Think about that. He says, I'm thankful for your fellowship, your partnership in the gospel. That which is greater than us will last longer than us. They were brought together in the gospel. They were brothers and sisters in the gospel. They were united in Jesus Christ. The old evangelist D.L. Moody said this. He said there are two ways of being united. Either frozen together or melted together. Frozen together or melted together. And Sam Gordon said in the church of Jesus Christ, We are not frozen together by formulism. We are not rusted together by ritualism. We're not linked together by liberalism. We're not chained together by conservatism. We are melted together by the maestro of the Holy Spirit. And we need to remember that, beloved. We are one in Jesus Christ. We are one in the gospel. Those of us here today who know Jesus as Savior and Lord, who love him, we are partners together. We're brought together in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that verse again, verse five, for your fellowship in the gospel. Notice what it says from the first day, from the first day. When Paul thought about the Philippians and he thought about his first days there, we studied that last week. He had a lot to think about. If you remember back from Acts chapter 16, the church in Philippi started with three great conversions. There was the businesswoman named Lydia who was saved. Then there, there, there was that uh, demon-possessed slave girl who was delivered and, and converted. And then there was the Philippian jailer. And you remember Paul and Silas had been beaten. They'd been cast into prison. They put their feet in stocks. In other words, his first days at Philippi, his his beginning there, it was not a luxury vacation at the Hawaii Hilton. Days of hardship, days of toil, days of suffering. And yet when he remembers those days, Paul remembers them with thanksgiving and joy. And it says there in verse five, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. You have been partners in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ until now. In other words, you stood with me. They had stood with Paul. They supported Paul. He stood with them and loved them. You can begin to see today just how warm and loving and special the letter to the Philippians really is. Paul is a wonderful example to us that we need to live a life of thanksgiving. We should be thankful for our own fellowship in the gospel. God brought us together in the gospel. You think about those early converts at uh, Philippi, you have Lydia, that businesswoman, it says in her household, you have a demon possessed slave girl who was delivered and converted. And then you have a tough man, the Philippian jailer, an unlikely group, probably if it were not for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that group would have never gotten together for even social interaction. And yet through Christ, they were brought together in Christ. 
You know, in this church, we have people from all different walks of life. We have folks from different social classes, financial status, and even individual tastes and preferences. But I want you to hear this. We are brought together in Jesus Christ. We are one in Christ, a fellowship of the gospel. And we should be thankful for that. You just sang. And I hope it's not become so rote and so monotonous. You're not truthfully singing. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Because here we have in this local church, a group of believers joined together in the gospel. And Paul said basically in verse three, this look at what it says again. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He basically says, I have you on my mind. I have you in my thoughts. What do you think about that? What you care about? We need to live a life of thanksgiving. You ready for number two? We need to live a life of prayer. Look at verse four. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy. Not only could Paul say, I have you on my mind and my thoughts, I also have you in my prayers. Read it again with emphasis, noting the words. That's a good thing to do as you read your Bible. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy. Now, we know when it says always there, Paul is not meaning that I spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week on my knees praying for you, Philippians. Keep it in context. He just said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Every time they came to his mind, every time somebody mentioned them, he would praise God for them and pray for them and make requests with joy. Notice what characterizes prayer. First of all, thanksgiving. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Secondly, wholeness. Say, what do you mean, preacher? Notice verse four again. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, all of you. I pray for all of you. I love all of you. Notice, likewise, request. It says making requests with joy. In other words, he was bringing specific requests, specific things he was asking God to do in the life of the Philippian believers. In fact, we'll study some of those specific things probably next week. Paul was a man of prayer. I went through and put down some references from other of his books. Listen to what they say. Romans 1, 9. Listen. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. To the Corinthians, he wrote these words in chapter 1 and verse 4, 1 Corinthians. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.16, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Colossians 1.3, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. 1 Thessalonians 1.2, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. 2 Thessalonians 1.11, wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Philemon 4, I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayer. Beloved, do you wonder why Paul was so mightily used of God? He was a man of prayer, much prayer. I was struck by these words this past week from John Walford. He said, in our modern day, when the when programs and publicity And promotion characterize the Lord's work. 
It is sometimes overlooked that without prayer, no eternal work can be accomplished for God. I'm going to read that again. I want you to catch that. In our modern day, when programs and publicity and promotion characterize the Lord's work, it is sometimes overlooked that without prayer, no eternal work can be accomplished for God. And he's right. Now, do we have programs? Yes. Do we use means of publicity and promotion? Yes. But the question today is, do we pray? Because without prayer, no eternal work can be accomplished for God. We need to live a life of prayer. Paul, remember, writing here in Philippians, he's in a prison cell. He's in prison in Rome. He's bound physically, but his prayers were not bound. He was able to pray for them. He was separated from the Philippians by hundreds of miles, yet it did not hinder his prayers for them. Do you realize, beloved, through prayer, we can travel literally around the world And never leave our spot. The power of prayer. Let me ask you, don't don't acknowledge publicly, but in your own heart. Do you pray for those seated around you? Do you pray for those seated around you? Do you pray for the church here and the work that God has given for us to do? Do you pray for me, your pastor? Do your prayers, are they filled with the thanksgiving that Paul's were? We've heard it a thousand times, if not more. But oh, to God, it was thinking this time, we need to live a life of prayer. A life of thanksgiving, a life of prayer. Thirdly, this morning, we need to live a life of confidence. Look at verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Let me caution you right away. When I say we need to live a life of confidence, I'm not talking about worldly confidence. I'm not saying we need to be self-sufficient. I want to be very, very careful as we look at this precious verse. Notice what it says. Being confident of this very thing. I want you to notice who the confidence is based on and, and, and who it is based in. That he... That he, which have begun a good work in you, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's based on the Lord. The Lord is the one who began the work and the Lord is the one who's going to complete the work. God had begun a work in them. Say, preacher, what kind of work? He saved them. He saved them. He brought them up from miry pit and set their feet upon a solid rock. He forgave their sin. He washed them in the blood of Christ. He began a good work in them. And Paul says, I'm confident that he which began that good work, he will perform. It means to complete. He will complete that work. You and I, if we're honest, I won't ask you today, but you and I, if we're honest, we start things. We start things. We start projects. We start hobbies. We might take up a sport. We take up some form of work. And what happens? If you're honest, what happens? Sometimes we do what? We give up. Don't be elbowing each other, husbands and wives and stuff now. We give up. We quit. We don't finish what we set out to do. Listen, thanks be to God that we do not save ourselves in the first place. Secondly, we do not have to keep ourselves saved. And thirdly, we do not have to make it to heaven in the end. 
We don't do that. God is the one who saves. God is the one who secures. God is the ultimately the one who brings to completion. He began the work. He will complete the work. Paul had a confidence about God's work, no doubt, in himself, as well as a confidence concerning God's work in the Philippians. He told them God began the work. He saved you. God will complete the work when look at it again, being confident of this very thing that he which have begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What in the world is that preacher? When will that be? Well, beloved, this is the rapture of the church. It involves the resurrection of the Christian dead and the translation of the living saved. Think about that. The resurrection of the Christian dead, those who died in Christ, and the translation, the changing of those who are saved and still living. You can jot down this reference and look it up later. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. But let me share with you 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Listen, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Wouldn't you love to be out in the cemetery on that day? Maybe you wouldn't. I don't know, but... It says in the next verse, then we which are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we be ever with the Lord. And it says in verse 18, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. God is at work in our lives. We forget that. We look at other people and forget God's working in them. Those who know those who know Christ as Savior and Lord, he's molding us and changing us and shaping us. So that we'll be like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, this is a good work. A good work. Gromacki says it includes a righteous standing before God. That is justification. God declares us just through Jesus Christ in whom we stand. It's a progressive deliverance from the power of sin. That is sanctification. And then likewise... It's the prospect of an immortal, incorruptible body that is glorification given that new body. We might say it this way. God has delivered us as we trusted Christ from the penalty of sin. Right now we have a victory over the power of sin as we become more like Christ and can say no to sin. And one day we will have the literal deliverance from the presence of sin when we meet Jesus. And our confidence in this, beloved, is in God himself. God is doing the work in us. God will complete the work he has begun. I like the way the preacher John Phillips said it. He said the Holy Spirit never loses sight of the end of his work. He will not end, listen, until he has made us just like Jesus. He will continue working until he's made us presentable enough to pass with praise to the final test of the judgment seat and be fit to be introduced in glory as the helpmeet of the glorious man who sits at God's right hand. He says this, we may fail along the way. Amen. Did you fail this past week? 
Did you fail in the last hour? He says, we may fail along the way, and indeed we often do, but he never does. Glory to God, beloved. We're secure in him. Our powerful God is doing a work in us and he will accomplish it. He will complete it. That's something to get excited about. No wonder Paul is joyful. No wonder though he's bound in a prison. He is joyful in the Lord because he knew God's at work. The story is told of 80 year old Marianne. 80 year old Marianne was in a strong Californian earthquake. And throughout that earthquake, she remained serene and unafraid. Now, some looked at Marianne and questioned her sanity and whether perhaps she was in denial of the late stages of of senality. And others conjectured, well, perhaps she's been through an earthquake before and she's had a survival experience. And that led her to her calm and hopeful demeanor. Still, others said, well, maybe she's basically just so old she doesn't care if she dies or not. Well, Marianne. However, offered the following explanation when a reporter asked her, why weren't you afraid? An 80 year old Marianne said this. She said, I never thought of being afraid. I was too busy rejoicing at the truth that I serve a God who's able to shake the whole world. Way to go, Marianne. Oh, that more of us were like her. Realizing we serve a God who can shake the world, who even made the world. And yet we do what in our lives? We spend most of our time focusing on a little earthquake here, earthquake here in our lives. Rather than focusing upon the Lord. We need to live a life of confidence, not in ourselves, not in each other. Don't look to me. I'll tell you every time. Look to Jesus, our great God. He will never fail. And by the way, beloved. Now, hear this. You get nothing else. As we look at one another. We need to remember. That all of us, all of us are a work in progress. We all need to maybe wear a little sign that says, don't give up. God's not finished with me yet. When you look at each other, remember that even when you are frustrated and fumed God's not done with them. By the way, God's not done with you. First John three, one through three. Behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God? Listen, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. We need to live a life of thanksgiving. We need to live a life of prayer. We need to live a life of confidence in God and forfeit today. We need to live, are you ready? A life of love. Look at verses 7 and 8. Even as it is meet or right for me to think this of you all. Why? Because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers of my grace. For God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Paul has already said, basically, I have you in my thoughts. I have you in my prayers. Now he says, you know what, Philippians? I have you in my heart. 
Don't get caught up on the words there, bowels. That's the idea they understood understood that to be the seat of the emotions or tender mercies of Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 8. For God is my record how greatly I long after you all, all of you. I love all of you. 1 John 3.14 says, we know that we have passed from death unto life. How? Because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. He says, I have you on my heart. I have you in my heart. I love you. Listen, you need to hear this. Someone said Paul cared deeply and honestly. He said his love could not be disguised or hid. But listen, they were on his heart. That's a good place to carry people. Why, preacher? Well, this person says this. If you carry them on your nerves, I have you on my nerves, you'll get a good case of the jitters. He said if you carry them on your neck, you're sure to get a dose of hypertension. And if you carry them on your stomach, you'll end up with an ulcer. That's why Paul said, you're on my heart. Now, let me ask you, don't answer aloud. But in all honesty, are your brothers and sisters in Christ mostly on your nerves? Or on your heart? It's a great difference. Paul has served as a wonderful example for us today. We need to live a life of thanksgiving. We need to live a life of prayer. We need to live a life of confidence in God. And we need to live a life of love. Now let me ask you, friend, what kind of life are you living? And I'll honest, I need to ask this question first. Are you really living at all? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior? Are you dead in your trespasses and sin or are you alive in Christ? If you never met him, he died for you. He shed his blood for you. He was buried for you. He arose for you. He loves you. He longs to save you as you place your faith and trust in him. As you repent of your sin and take Christ by faith, he'll give you new life. And then for those of us today who have new life in Christ, where are you in these four areas? Do you live a life of thanksgiving? Do you live a life of prayer? Do you live a life of confidence in God? And do you live a life of love? Beloved, this is truly the kind of life that's worth living. You say, well, preacher, why is Paul's life worth emulating? Why are you holding him up as an example today? Well, good question. And I want you to drop down in this same chapter and I'll show you why. Verse 21. Here's what it says. Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why is Paul's life worth emulating? Because Paul lived a Christ like life. For to me, to live is Christ. Christ is my life, Paul is saying there. He is my life. Can you say that today? Father, we love you. We magnify, praise, and exalt you. We thank you, Lord, for Paul and his testimony. We thank you ultimately today for Jesus Christ. Father, I pray if there's one here today that does not know you, I pray they'll come and trust Christ. And then, Lord, I pray... 
for those of us who do know you. As the Holy Spirit has put his finger on maybe one area or two areas or various things in our lives, we'd be submissive to his leading and we would move out and be obedient to him today. Bless in this invitation, I pray in the Savior's name. Amen.